start with just introducing yourself and then we'll jump into our questions. Yeah, I'm the Lindy man. Uh, I'm just the Twitter poster. That's who I am. <laughs> you're, you're like, you're very infamous though. I feel like I hear about people, like it's, it's really strange because your account isn't that large follow, follower wise, but like I hear about you in real life all the time. That's good to know. Yeah, I don't have a lot of uh, followers really, um, but seems like people know who I am. So I guess that's the, uh, that's, uh, I don't know how that works. I don't know how much of this works. I'm just posting and seeing what happens. I, I feel like I've been following you for years at least. How'd you get started? Um, I was, I was uh, I think I was a Taleb reply guy for a while. Nassim Taleb, I, just, I was just following him. I think 2016 rolled around. I think it was, I followed some kind of funny accounts that were posting about the election. Uh, I don't know. And then I don't really know how any of this works. And eventually I started uh, kind of writing more and more. And um, I think things, things sort of uh, build on each other. I started a sub stack that's been going well. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just... Um, it's hard to explain how, what you do, you just sort of go out there and you write every day and, uh, and just thoughts in your head, so. You, you have some like pretty big fans. Like I know Mark Andreessen really likes you. He was on, you did a conversation with him recently. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, he, he used to DM me for a while for like a year or two, just uh, talking about things I've written about, um, how, how he sees like, um, he said, he said something like he sees sort of when he th thinks about investing in a product, he thinks about the Lindy effect and talk about how uh, he sees American influence everywhere because um, I wrote an article on it. Yeah, that's cool. Like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Like I said, I just I just sort of write stuff uh, and see what happens. And there's no like strategy or networks i know there's a lot of networks behind the scenes with like people sort of grouping up and like there's factions and clicks like i don't do any of that uh i just sort I've, of just post i've noticed actually like i really like that about your like twitter strategy like you i like how ruthlessly you block people and i like how you don't seem like you're in any clicks and you kind of just ignore haters yeah yeah so um yeah i do i did i do block people and i and I do unblock them. And sometimes their behavior changes after you unblock them. So you're actually um, training them how to act online, uh, especially, you know, so be, and, and then they change in a way. I think I unblocked recently, I don't know, like 500 people. And then they all, for some reason, knew they, they got unblocked and refollowed me again after years, by the way. Like, I think I blocked them like a year or two ago. And then they would thank me. They would send DMs saying thanks, it's good to be back. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and there's clicks too, I guess, because some people think that there's territory or there's space, market space. I guess whenever there's an audience, there's a market. And whenever there's a market, there's vendors. And whenever there's vendors, there's competition. Uh, I don't really see it that way. I just see it as um, uh, 
you know, just, just having a good time and, and posting your thoughts and coming up with interesting concepts and telling some jokes sometimes. And, uh, but there's no, there's people out here trying to make a career and if they feel threatened by you, they'll start sort of attacking you uh, and also getting a network to attack you. Uh, so it's weird. There's a lot of weird games going on behind the scenes that people don't see and you sound crazy if you talk about it. So I don't. I, I, oh my, I will talk about it in real life. I'll talk about it online. I, I mean, I, I kind of need to <laughs> reel it in. TPD, have you noticed these sort of like weird Twitter politics? Um, I have, but I'm new to Twitter. Uh, so it just seems insane to me to be upset by them because these pe these factions are not ones that actually exist in real life. I mean, anyone that's really getting upset about some online war about like trad people versus extreme kink people um, has just completely lost touch with the, the average person, I guess is the way I see it. There's that, there's that, which is like people self-identify and then it's kind of like Balkan YouTube comments, people from different countries insulting each other, but like mm -hmm. to identity, there's that. But there's also people who are trying to make money online. And if you try to attack their brand or what they're doing or their friends, they'll see that as like an attack in their business. And you'll get uh, situations <laughs> where like, like to them, it's very serious. And to the outside, you're like, hey, we're just posting on Twitter. Um, so that comes into play with some people like podcasters on Patreon or whatever who want to you know, see this as their ticket out of the four hour life, you know, so. Right, that's true. I mean, maybe the reason people get so upset about it is that unlike normal celebrity, it's not like you have a skill or an art product that you can separate from your personality. Like, you know, celebrity, I guess, has intermeshed artistic output and personality for a long time, but with podcasters and things like that, it seems like it's at a whole new level. So any attack on that is an attack on you as a core person you can't say well I guess this film that I made was bad if someone's saying what's wrong with you is that you're trad or something uh, I think there's probably an autobiographical nature to uh to things now if you're online I think there's a general sense that people want to know about your life mm -hmm. um in the 20th century you I guess you're the paparazzi who would do that as a filter and now uh, you know and but then there's so there's so much distance right so Tom Cruise so distance distant from you right and like you wouldn't know what he's doing or whatever but you but now if you follow I guess if you follow somebody online you want to little know like like are they is this a for real person like um I guess that's part of it too as well I don't know yeah but I mean for the self-esteem of the individual online celebrity maybe because the foundation of that online celebrity is so you know hyper personal they can't really separate rejection of their Twitter from rejection of them as a person. Like if you were a formerly successful novelist, but your last novel was a dud, like, I don't know, Jonathan Franzen with Purity, he could probably say, oh, well, Purity wasn't a very good book, but I'm still a good person. But someone who makes their you know, bread and butter from just shooting the shit on a podcast, if someone turns against that podcast, it's sort of turning against them as a person. Uh, I think Franzen was, is wildly successful. So you can always turn to that, that uh, whereas online, <laughs> online it's like nobody I mean there's some people making it like I interviewed what Felix Biederman from Chapo Trap House and those guys make like 150,000 a month at this point so like who cares what you say to them right like like who can I mean there's nothing you can say to these guys because it's like dude uh you know I'm a millionaire for telling jokes online but with other people who are making rent right or making 
less than rent, uh, and they're they may think like insults may hit harder, right? Because they don't have that that sort of giant success to sort of back them up. So. Nobody talks about like the growing pains that you like are inevitably going to experience. I think like at like the life cycle of like internet celebrity, like you start like everyone wants to support you just because you're creating something. Then like you get too big. So you're like cringe or fed or, you know, somehow threatening. And then you, then like, if you can get past that, then you're, you know, you're, you're doing well. Yeah. And this is, uh, I mean, you know, there's Instagram people with millions of followers, YouTubers. There's a lot of, it's a huge ecosystem, right? Like I have like what, 25,000 followers at this point. Like this is nothing compared to, uh, really big deals, uh, really big uh, accounts out there in different platforms. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, and this sort of like dovetails into, you know, something that you've written about. Um, I do think that what you see online matters. Like, I, I know that you've written about how we have like less of a media monoculture, everything's a subculture. And I think like the people who rule the subcultures, like you and a lot of Kate, like, I feel like you could be considered someone who like rules a subculture, right? Like you're an icon of a particular subculture and that subculture like then reflects back into the real world. Like, I think it really, it says, it speaks volumes that like Mark Andreessen is a fan of yours. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like it's another thing, like uh, you don't really know how, uh, I know there's people who like my tweets. I know there's regulars, um, but you don't really know how much influence you have if any in a subculture, right? I mean, you have, it's almost like a corner of a bar. You have, you have people, you know, who are listening to you talk and you listen to them talk too. Uh, and, but you don't really, I mean, I don't really know. You say if I'm influential. All right, I'll, I'll agree with that in this <laughs> subculture, but I don't really know. Yeah, I don't, I mean, this, this is just, I guess maybe I have like a little bit of like Twitter toxicity, right? And I overstate. <laughs> how important Twitter is, but I, I feel like I do see like changes uh, from different like Twitter subcultures. And that's like, you could track big, you could track big cultural changes based on like different platform changes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think you're, you're a Twitter user, right? So like, that's part of your pattern of, uh, of consumption in a way. Uh, and I, uh, I, I guess I'm writing about patterns soon and like how, um, how it's easy to deplatform someone now like Stefan Molyneux was this sort of uh, guy who had oh, almost a million YouTube followers and then also half a million YouTube uh, Twitter followers and he always had these big posts and then he got deplatformed and like one percent of his followers followed him back to his personal website and it's because nobody's sort of in the pattern of sort of going to like personal content creators websites you just go to twitter kind of and you see what's going on i guess you'll you'll get as much influence as you watching a television show or a movie right so. yeah i i think so i mean the stefan uh molyneux example is really interesting he like yeah he really just fell off the map although it's interesting because like alex jones didn't really fall off the map and he he was you platform pretty hard like he's still kind of raking yeah up. but he's he's a uh, he's also like pre-internet He's sort of been, uh, he's a, he has a fan base that's probably way more loyal and more uh, kind of sees him a little bit as probably a, more of a serious figure than Malinu, who's in a sense, if you can't, 
if you get the platform and you can't attract your uh, followers to, you know, another website, I mean, are they, they're really just followers of the platform and not necessarily view. I think Alex Jones is sort of a cultural icon at this point. I think his, his, um, his rep has really increased with like just everything becoming a conspiracy in the last 10 years, like how conspiracy cultures gone from like this, like, I don't know, like in the late nineties, early two thousands, nobody was really casually talking about conspiracies. And now it's like everywhere, Epstein, um, everything like Bill Gates now, or uh, even with the vaccine stuff or, or the pandemic, it's just, uh, that's sort of like we've become like a conspiracy culture and like some of it's true it's not but that's not the point it's like our shared culture now and I think Alex Jones is sort of the, the godfather of that and, and uh, he's pro probably on another level at this point. What do you think of conspiracy culture TPG? Um, well I think that the shift is marked and impossible not to notice but um, I mean it's I guess we can speculate about what it's in reaction to. Um, but I mean, it's true that the news became more polarized after 2016 and it's hard really to trust the mainstream media on either side. And, you know, I guess with the growth of social media, people are better able to foment and, and support their conspiracy theories. But I mean, I, I guess it's true. I never would have considered myself a conspiracy theorist growing up, but now I believe many things that I get accused of being a victim of Russian disinformation for believing. Um, that I'm totally convinced of. Um, and it would have been hard to, like, when I was 14 years old, envision myself today believing stuff that I read on Twitter, when back then I just sort of read Brookings Institution papers and State Department reports and wanted to work in government and all of that without any doubt whatsoever. But I mean, it's true that the government lies to us constantly and it's become insanely transparent in the last couple of years. With, like, corona in particular... I, I was thinking, I got, I got vaccinated yesterday and I was thinking like, maybe it really just is incompetence and like all of these theories, like, you know, the, the origin theories or whatever, but like the theory is about like various lockdowns and like, is a vaccine going to sterilize us and whatever, like maybe it's just like, they really are just disorganized and like, they're just hedging their bets and there's no, there's nothing fantastical about it. I remember I used to date someone who had been Debbie Wasserman Schultz's, uh, you know, right-hand man, and he had to leave politics and move to Silicon Valley after the whole, you know, sabotaging or whatever, interfering with the primary stuff came out and Debbie Wasserman Schultz's emails. And he just 100% was of the stance that everything in government that seems like a conspiracy can just be attributed to incompetence. Like what's that phrase never attribute to spite where you can attribute to stupidity? It seems like yeah. at least there, the view from the inside was that basically all it, we don't live in a meritocracy um, or rather we don't live in a meritocratic government or we don't live in an actually functioning technocracy. So the people that have power, there's no reason to believe that they're better able to run elections or run vaccine distribution or deal with public health than you know a monkey flipping quarters. Um, so, I mean, with like the, the lockdowns, I don't know, part of me wants to think that it was a conspiracy by big tech. And I find it hard to believe that big tech didn't have any interest uh, in forcing people to be online for an entire year. But on the other hand, I mean, 
the people who really believe that it was a conspiracy, who do they believe it was a conspiracy between? I, I mean, there's a lot of people who, that, you know, who have your belief, who think that it's tech trying to get us to live in pod world, um, government trying to control us more. I don't know. Right, but you, what's, but what's the pathway of influence there? Is it via lobbyists or? No one thinks that far out. It's just, they, I mean, all, a lot of these are just like generic, people are sort of just like generically proposing things and then everyone gets scared and, you know, there's 20 tweet long threads that say nothing or articles that say nothing. <laughs> right. So that's, it's just entertainment, right? So it's an entertainment genre. Uh, that's also realistic because it's your life. Um, it's also the shadowy government uh, doing things that sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. In my in my article when I was writing about conspiracies and Substack, um, I think we don't talk about the private sector enough and conspiracies. I think we're sort of focused on the government. Like uh, in the early 90s, they released uh, this consortium of, what is it, plastics manufacturers and um, uh, regulators decided to add the recycling symbol on um, bottle, plastic bottles to recycle because people were starting to get very environmentally uh, was it aware uh, at that time. Like at that, that was like the early '90s was like when, really when the modern sort of environmental movement kind of went into overdrive. But they didn't have any way to recycle them. And uh, it was all sort of, and this was like an NPR story that came out last year. And uh, the, none of these bottles were recycled. And it's actually cheaper to just keep making new plastic bottles. But, you know, at the time, nobody knew that. And probably right now, they still don't know that, that, uh, you know, when you actually throw away your plastic bottles, they're not really getting recycled. Um, they're actually just going somewhere else. So, I mean, that's a conspiracy, right? You're thinking you're helping the environment and really nothing's, nothing's really happening. That, that, one's true. that one's true, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, true. All the stuff about microplastics, um, you know, impacting people, especially in like Southeast Asia is totally true. I mean, they have just like pot, like it's in their water and there's piles of, of plastic in Southeast Asia. It's in our water, <laughs> it's everywhere. Um, but that's, I mean, that's a good point that like, you don't hear too many conspiracies like coming from or you know about the private sector i think that government's probably mostly incompetent with like one or two like really big shady things you know excluding war and that sort of thing um but i'm you know things that really affect people's day-to-day -day life um but companies i mean like they lie all the time and in really big ways yeah uh but generally um like the epstein thing is just just got so big so big i never saw anything like it before i went up like jimmy kimmel's making jokes about it and sometimes i wonder if if a real could there be a conspiracy that's true that would be dangerous to like the powers that be would ever reach that level or is it is there some co-optation going well, on the, but, the yeah that was a weird so moment weird. I, I was hearing about epstein in like 1998 like epstein's right. been a thing for like that was i feel like everyone kind of knew about that and then it was it was weird that it became a news story because it it really did feel like it you know you'd hear about it on coast to coast and Infowars uh, like in the mid two thousands and then suddenly it's like everyone's talking about Epstein everyone knows about it everyone buys into it um, I don't know how like like how much I I mean I haven't looked into it too much but like do you think like Oprah is like 
you know, a, a pedophile or an amphibophile. Like that's the kind of thing that I like, <laughs> that I wonder about people like that, you know, Prince Andrew, sure, but Oprah, Chrissy Teigen. I think there's just been a collapse of mainstream culture and uh, that kind of helps fill the void. I mean, that sort of crosses into news, crosses into politics, which is, you know, was everywhere during the Trump years. It was so poisonous and disgusting to follow. Um, and uh, it's something you can talk to people about, I guess, uh, in a way that, you know, what show are you watching right now? Because we're not watching the same shows. One of us might not even be watching any shows. If you go to a job, what are you going to talk to your coworkers about, about what you sort of watched that weekend or that week? It's going to be hard to connect. No, I mean, I think I, I, so I just, I disagree with, with that because like, I do think that like, like everyone will be watching Game of Thrones. Everyone watched Breaking Bad. Everyone watched Orange is the New Black. Everyone watches all the, the, I, I mean, I think you, you, you might point this out in, in one of your articles that there's like some things that everyone watches, but I do think there's like a type of person. It's just hard to predict like, who's the person who's really checking in with the Mandalorian who decided to play for, pay for Disney Plus. Even with some countercultural things, like everyone listens to Chapo, right? Or like most people listen to Chapo. Most people listen to True Anon. Most people listen to Red Scare. I think you're in like another dimension. I don't think <laughs> most don't people think, listen to True Anon. I don't think, yeah. No, I not most people in the world. Far. I mean, like of like there's a type, right? Like you're, you you don't like the Mandalorian. You're like a, a 19 to, 25 year old who lives in one of the coastal cities, you probably listen to Chapo Trap House. So there's like a very high chance that it's at least on your radar. I don't think I've ever met anybody who's ever listened to them or, or barely <laughs> talked to people like that. So I think, you know, in one sense you can have, you can be in a bubble and these are the people, you know, in, in a sense, we're all going to subcultures now, right? There's a reason why I'm on the show, right? So um, there's that. But yeah, I don't think the, I think these are all niche type. Uh, I think Saturday Night Live might be one of the last mainstream shows that people, I guess, watch. Well, I guess, I mean, maybe what's closer to true is that either you like the Avengers movies or you listen to Chapo. Well, that's what I was saying. That's what, yeah. that's what, I think like there's, you could sort of guess the type. It's not that every 19 to 24 year old or 18 to 24 year old listens to Chapo. It's just that, you know, like that's, it's, it's widespread enough that like a certain type of young person is going to listen to trap to Chapo. Um, a certain type of like 25 to 34 year old was watching the Mandalorian and like had one of those baby Yoda plushies and stuff. Like I, everyone at my office watched the Mandalorian, right? Like I, you know, I couldn't stop hearing about it. Everyone watched the Queen's Gambit. That's true. I don't think anyone at my bank believes in the Jeffrey Epstein conspiracy. <laughs> Although I'm not going to bring it up to them. <laughs> yeah, so I haven't, I haven't seen The Mandalorian or The Queen's Gambit. And I feel like those are like really female oriented. I almost feel like a lot of mainstream entertainment just decides to just provide entertainment to females now or something. Like, is everything sort of female oriented? Do you feel like you're being catered to? in a way with these shows? Um, I mean, so I don't, I don't actually watch them myself. I, I'm just thinking of like, who, like peak normies, like people who I know who are just like, they're not really online. And that's like mostly like people I work with um, when I was going into an office. 
Um, these were sort of the things I was hearing. Um, I mean, maybe I feel like there's a lot more, the reality TV actually feels kind of dead. I feel like there was a lot of reality TV for a while there and that kind of petered out. Um, do you not watch 90 Day? Oh, no. No. Not, I mean, 90 Day, there's like now, I don't know if you include all the spinoffs, there's something like 25 seasons of material there and it's going strong. And everyone that I know, including myself, watches 90 Day Fiance. Maybe it's true that actually most media today is catering to women, um, yeah. except for superhero movies, which are catering to everyone. Well, those um, are catering towards straight men who are kind of feminine in a way. So that's kind of the same kind of the same overlapping circle, right? It's like, like superhero movies are straight camp, like heterosexual <laughs> versions of gay culture, right? Like you get these, they're on steroids, these actors. You know that, right? Uh, what's his name? That comedian did steroids, uh, the Pakistani guy. I don't oh, know. Oh yeah, the guy from, yeah. Right, and he has this book, he was this fat little comedian and now he's just got huge and Look, I've been around martial arts and, you know, the gym for a long time. I can tell when, when a guy starts using substances. Anyways, uh, you know, they're dressing in these, in these outfits and, yeah, I, I, what am I watching right now? What am I looking at? It's, it's ridiculous. Um, and uh, so anyways, but, but a lot of the TV shows, I, I just feel like, I feel like women, uh, they're, they're catering toward women and women are just watching a lot of television right now. I, I don't know what. I don't know. That's, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that there's something kind of like feminine about superhero movies is a good, like I had ne I'd actually never considered that. It, it, it is kind of like, yeah, it is, it is camp. I don't know, what do you, what do you think, TPG? Um, I mean, to be honest, I've never watched a superhero movie because um, I live in a little bubble of my own making. They just seem totally uninteresting to me. So I assumed that it was just parents and really, really low IQ guys that want to watch them. Yeah, I mean, super movie, superhero movies aren't interesting and they're not, they're just completely dead. And like, you gotta be like an idiot. I mean, it's just, there's nothing there. I mean, but they're uh, absolutely like shockingly dominant. Like I think was Avengers in 2019. I, th I think that was the film that sold the most tickets of any film in human history. And it was also the year that ticket sales overall were the lowest that they had been since sound pictures came about like Avengers has just totally taken over everything in cinema, which is maybe why all that we are left of to talk about at the water cooler is whatever came out on Netflix this month. Right, I think I call that the stuck culture, how like something happened in the mid 2000s. And I talked to a few people about it. Um, Mark Andreessen thinks that like executives don't wanna take risks anymore because if you just keep, uh, if you keep releasing superhero movies, people will go watch them. Mm -hmm. um, people are sort of training people to just every generation to just keep watching superhero movies and they're like uh, I guess what is Scorsese said there's like a theme park kind of ride so they're not really filmed you're, you're really just you know in this uh, room to watch like computer generated uh, an experience right mm -hmm. uh, it's lots of momentous sort of images uh, and, and also why risk moving on to doing like real films? Um, because you have a formula that works. And, you know, if let's say they take a risk and a studio decides not to make superhero movies, they want to go back to making 
I don't know, like an Eric Rahmer film from the 70s or, or like something like really uh, uh, different and they lose their audience. Their audience could just go to the internet and be gone forever. And, you know, I mean, I think the goal for big, big movie kind of films is just sort of uh, get these people in, get the kids in, uh, lowest common denominators. Yeah, I mean, another factor I've heard is that uh, the largest movie audience at this point is in China. In American theaters, the average audience is four people, like the average room at a cinema is gonna have four customers in it. So everyone's really making films for China and it's a lot easier with the superhero movies because you don't have complicated dialogue that you have to translate. Now, the reason that Netflix isn't doing that is because Netflix doesn't have a license to operate in China. Um, And that's why they put out Noah Baumbach movies which one could say are sort of the spiritual heir to the Romero movies. And everyone knows that they're not going to make as much money as Avengers. And everyone knows that they're not good. I see, I see you shaking your head, but I, I think he named his son Romer or something. <laughs> I mean, I don't think Netflix makes good. Do you think Netflix makes good? Maybe they make good shows for women. Because that's, no, what, I, that's what I see that demographic is sort of pointed at. I don't garbage. Netflix makes like garbage. Emily I'm an Paris. anti-Netflix oh, okay. person. Um, it's yeah, unambitious. It's unambitious because yeah. they know that they're not going to be releasing it to movie theaters. They're not going to be making that much money. And so they just put out schlock on a sort of once a month basis. So people don't cut their subscription. All they're attempting to do is get you not to cancel for one more month. Yeah, I just generally think all scaled up entertainment and media is dead. Um, and the only thing alive is subcultures. And that's the only thing interesting. But then again, I'm in a subculture. So you're asking the barber if you need if he needs a haircut <laughs> or if you need a haircut. He's going to say yes. Yeah, I when I think about like long term success, like I I love I love writing fiction. And when I like imagine um, like what long term success looks like, like I, I picture like delicious tacos like I don't think like I feel like any kind of success with art of any variety I like my goal is to be like important in a subculture or like you know consumed in a subculture when I was like trying to be a filmmaker same thing like I wanted to have films accepted at South by I didn't care whether or not they got distributed in a theater because it's like you know it it, it doesn't feel like it's for me or it's it's open yeah I don't know uh I think finding success is, is something that's it's a weird it's a weird thing. Other, you know, once you get past, uh, I like what this what what this is. Whether it's a podcast, a conversation, or a piece of writing, uh, it's not up to you. And I don't think you can really you can really manipulate the way it, it goes. All you can just kind of do is enjoy it and think it's good, and just send it out into the wild and see what happens. Um. So you you said Paul that Mark Andreessen's theory was that executives are afraid to take risks, which I, I think is, I think is somewhat true. Um, but like, to what extent do you subscribe to that? I mean, he knows more than I do. He's, he's talking to these people, right? I mean, he's, he's in these inner circles with, with, with the elite. Like I'm not rubbing shoulders with the Disney CEO. Like who <laughs> the fuck knows what's going on at the C-suite media companies. I'll take your word for it, Mark. I think you're, uh, you probably have more information on this field than I do. So that's, yeah, I could, all I can see is the output, which is complete garbage. So well, I mean, what's your, what's your explanation for the for the monoculture? Or I, I I know in part what it is because I read your post about it. But do you want to you know explain 
what do you see as the reason that the only movies are superhero movies? Oh, I just think that uh, something happened in the mid 2000s that the mainstream and the under and the internet uh, kind of went went into different directions. The mainstream kind of stopped and fossilized. Uh, that's why you don't see these decade changes, like from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, and the first half of the 2000s, right? So the mid-2000s, you saw YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, uh, a bunch of other stuff. I go into the, my article, like the first iPod, I think, comes out. And just the, what, what we think of as the internet and technology now started there in this, in this you know, couple-year era, which is kind of crazy. And you look at mainstream entertainment, mainstream fashion, just a lot of, uh, just a lot of mass uh, trends that haven't really changed and lockstep to where they were decades before. And I think, I think the, the reason is, yeah, I think the reason is there's no point in one, things are stuck. So uh, could be because the algorithms don't actually predict new trends They'll take what your suggestions are and uh, give you something adjacent to it. So you can't create a new kind of aesthetic from an algorithm. You can just sort of predict something from the past. Um, I mean, we're seeing that with like writing styles, this new GR, PT3, whatever, it's trying to mimic like that sort of upper middle-class New Yorker academic HR writing style that's so popular these days. Um, so I think just things are, I don't really know. Generally, these are theories of why, but I don't think why matters as much as, geez, it's 2021 and it doesn't feel like, you know, it doesn't feel like 20, you know, 15 years ago was 2005 or 2006. It feels like, uh, which, which, which 15 years is a long time. It feels like time has sort of uh, changed because we're in some new era of decentralization. I think, yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with that. I was on TikTok the other day and I was, I hit a video and I couldn't tell if it was like a retro video kind of mocking 2008 or like if this is just things just like kind of look the same. I mean, like even myself, I have the, the same haircut I had in high school and the outfit I'm wearing is clothes that I had in high school. And this just looks like regular, right? Like. TBT, would you be able to like predict that like this is like high school clothes? Like it's just, I, there's no reason to switch stuff out. No, I was thinking I'm a, I'm a TA for creative writing class and the students recently had a series of prompts that was write something that took place five years ago, 10 years ago and 15 years ago. And it was just really sort of demoralizing to see them struggle to differentiate these times. And all that they could do was say, you know, Teresa takes out her iPhone two Teresa takes out her iPhone 5. She takes out her iPhone 7. That's the only thing that's changed over the last 15 years. Versus you look at, I don't know, a Dazed and Confused, you know, made in, what, 1993? Uh, takes place in 1976, I think. And, and you can see, you know, totally night and day. It's very obvious that this is a film taking place in the late 1970s. And it seems like there's nothing that's occurred during our adolescences and early, early adulthoods akin to that. Yeah, there's also there's also a flattening of, of the human sort of experience with design too. Um, I, I post there's so much posting that I don't really like capture. 
um, like feedback and replies from people that just talk about different things. Like one of them that I still remember is how accents or the ways people are talking from like the South or the West Coast are uh, sort of converging. Like, like younger people are speaking more similar to each other, even if they're in different geographic, geographic areas than maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, and then you also see like a Starbucks interior design, like minimalism thing that we're still in. Yeah. Right. Like we're still in this sort of app, the original Apple store aesthetic, uh, whatever you want to call it. Like we're still in that era in a way, or like that Steve Jobs era of design. So I don't think that's changed. Um, yeah, I think there's some, there's some subtle changes going underground. Uh, but generally people, uh, I don't know if people notice or even care because, uh, seems okay for them, I don't know. That's true, mid-century modernism has somehow not ended as a trend in furniture. We're just gonna have light pine wood tables for the rest of our lives. And I don't really yeah. know how these decisions were made and it's hard not to think that these were all made in the interest of lowest cost of production. Yeah, so if I had a conspiracy theory, I'd say that there was a top-down manipulation of culture and life in the 20th century that yes, people, like, record executives decided to move us from like disco to rock or uh, to hair metal in the 80s or whatever, whatever trend or whatever fashion that comes along. And there was this, it could just be a network effect too, but that's, that's sort of gone. And, and, um, and we may be back to some kind of like 16th century, 15th century thing where things change at like a hundred year basis maybe, or like an 80 year basis. But I don't know because there's the internet and that's like an X factor that, that was never around before. And it's sort of this living entity uh, that's, that I don't think anybody can sort of, um, can, can predict what's gonna happen, right? We had these protests with George Floyd, uh, from a video on the internet, you know, we had Donald Trump sort of sending his supporters to storm the, the Capitol from like an invite from the internet. So like, you don't know what's gonna like happen. Like it's sort of uh, this unpredictable force that goes into the real world in weird ways. So, yeah. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the idea that the internet like influences everything in really big ways. I mean, what you do see, we don't have a lot of aesthetic changes, but we do have a lot of like, uh, like ethical changes, right? Like, I mean, not to beat a dead horse, but there's like the woke, you know, wokeness. Um, it feels like, and I think like maybe a better way of putting that is maybe like social etiquette. Like that seems to be constantly in flux, like even day to day wouldn't be an exaggeration. I guess so. I mean, like, I think I created my own world where wokeness doesn't matter, but I guess I post online in public, so it kind of does. So I can't, I can't gauge uh, how important or how real it is because I haven't gotten fired for like comments or something. I don't know. I can't tell if something is just bullshit for people to make money or if it's real. And I haven't decided whether any of that is, is, is sort of worth my time to even think about in a way. I think like both of us, all three of us really like, we're, we don't post anything that's really out there, or like even like explicitly like anti-woke, but all three of us probably like couldn't work at like certain tech companies because we're like, 
we have a maybe like right wing flavor that's just assumed by the fact that we're not, we don't have our pronouns in our Twitter bio or like our LinkedIn. And that's, it's like this implicit thing, right? Like we probably, like we probably agree with like many things in like woke culture, but because we don't have the right at like aesthetics around it, we're automatically disqualified. And I do, I think that's real. I mean, I think, I, I think I've encountered it already. Um, I remember someone wanted to have me like beta test an app and their response that they got from one of their coworkers was like, oh, like I, you know, I follow, I follow her Twitter and she's like, she's sort of out there and, you know, like, isn't she, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it's like, the only reason I'm painted that way is because of the absence of what I said, I say, not because I've explicitly said something that, you know, supports one policy or another. Yeah, so I don't know anything about that. Um, I'm kind of, I consider that like ghetto stuff, but meaning like uh, you're either woke or anti-woke, like that's beneath me. Uh, my posting is ascended. I talk about things that are really more interesting, more real, uh, things that are timeless and beautiful. Uh, and I don't know if someone would consider me what, what part of the political spectrum. Uh, so yeah. It, it's funny, I, I do think you are like considered like, because you focus on timeless things and you know, like what has a, you know, what has staying power that's read as implicitly right wing, which is I think really interesting because it's like, it's not you, like, I, I don't know anything about your politics like realistically, right? But it's, it's really, it's weird that it's like, it's implied, even though you're really saying stuff that's applicable to anyone, it's apolitical. Um, it's, you know, it's just general interest, it's culture commentary. I mean, I would just say that, you know, I think post canon wars, I think in today's universities and people who've gone to college recently, uh, posting Roman and Greek philosophy and believing that this has some universal and transcendental applicability to the human experience is maybe more controversial than it seems to a real functioning adult, you know? Like if you go to a college English department today and you say you should read the Stoics, that will be seen as a right-wing gesture. Yeah, so I work for a living and uh, I call it the four-hour life. Like I only have a few hours left in my day to sort of, uh, that are mine, right? After uh, working a real job. And I think most people are in this camp and college. I remember being in college and being interested in things that are um, frivolous and irrelevant. Uh, because you just have a lot of time. It's a lot of fun. You date, you hang out with people. But when you start working, uh, you know, it just, for me, uh, it cuts off a lot of frivolous things and you just have to get to the payoff of what's, um, what could be useful. So I just sort of follow what's useful. And I aggressively with this brand, uh, this Lindy brand that I post about, I just sort of keep my eye on the ball because, um, I think ultimately there's there's just weird games going on with you know academia or people online res being responding to that as well, uh, and they're getting very successful. They're making a lot of money, getting a lot of they're getting you know becoming very popular. I but as someone who works for a living, that's not a game uh, I'm not I'm interested in or is useful for me. And I see that as like I'm taking the downside and you're taking the upside, uh, per but but perhaps. People like to get angry uh, and look for volatility after working a long day and like to get into like tribal wars. So they'll pick a side. Um, but for me, I, 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 I never post about it. I don't find it interesting unless it's a joke. 
because jokes are kind of special. So, you know, let me ask you, we had our delicious tacos on here last week and that interview was a lot about how, um, how worthless the working life makes your existence, how you're just constantly exhausted and humiliated by work. Um, and as someone who unfortunately has a real job too, I, I wondered if, if you resent your work or if you feel like it makes your existence richer, how you manage that. No, so that's like a black pill, I believe as the kids call it these days. Yes. Um, this sort of nihilism, uh, which you see a lot uh, when you when you encounter sort of uh, the discourse on working for a living. I, I don't think it sort of devalues you and I don't think it's, um, it's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I, I think the problem goes, the problem I think uh, I, I is, People don't know the structure, why you feel the way you feel, and what the per you know what's the purpose of of why you have a job and why you're not just a contractor and why everybody has isn't it just a contractor and you know you're paid to be consistent and uh, you're paid to be available right or else you know they need somebody who's reliable and then you you start reading about history and this is a very age old sort of um, tradition you're part of right and a lot of ancient slavery was, you know, accountants, doctors, um, lawyers, you know, it wasn't just sort of backbreaking physical labor. It was also that too. But there's, there's always been a need for a sort of employment. And, uh, and once you sort of understand that you're, you're in this sort of structure, uh, I don't think it's that bad. And I think, I think there's worse things in life. I've been broke as an adult. Um, that really sucks, uh, and that's way more humiliating than working for a living, you know, and, and sort of being on the edge of, of sort of, you know, existence, like, it's, that's tough, and, you, and you're, you're all, you also drop classes, um, so I don't, I don't see it as, as like this humili humiliating, and I don't hate my job, too, so I think my job is fine, I don't love it, but I don't hate it, um, but, but I also think it, I've been in positions where I did hate my job and it did cause me reactions. Like I would seek out more comedy on, you know, after work, right? I gravitated towards stand-up comedy because I needed to laugh a lot. Um, and then once you sort of get into a position of comfort, um, maybe get into a relationship too, like you don't really need this like extreme form of comedy. You, need, you don't need to laugh all day just to get through the day, right? Uh, just you, you can have amusement and that's, that's good enough. So yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think it's good to sort of think that, you know, work is humiliating or I think, I think, more, of it, I think more holidays would, be, would help a lot with mental illness in this country. I think the Europeans have, you know, you don't see like a lot of Europeans freaking out, right? A lot of them follow me online uh, they're fine with sort of working. They're kind of relaxed. I generally think a few adjustments to the American labor calendar or the rights, uh, I think would make a lot of people's lives better, like a better social safety net, some more holidays, more vacations. Um, I think there's a real sense of if you're in America and you don't, you don't get rich, there's something wrong with you. And that like pervades into our, our, our mindset um, and then you have the downside of, hey, like, 
you know, if I get fired or laid off, like how, how many rungs of the social ladder am I going to fall under? Like how bad is it going to be? Uh, you know, someone, some people may argue, well, one of the reasons why we have so much innovation in this country is because, you know, you know we don't have all these labor protections or whatever, but uh, I don't, I don't take the, the opinion that, that working is, is naturally like bad for you or anything. It's just a space to understand, like, there's people in payoff space who invest and start their own business. And then there's people in consistency space who, you know, have to flatten volatility all day and they have to push, you know, instead of having a pull, there's a push there that you have to do, you have to engage with. Um, so I think understanding it in those terms is a lot more healthier. If you um, were in a financial position from your other online activities to quit your job, do you think that you would do it? Uh, I don't, I don't, uh, first of all, I don't sell anything online. Um, I don't have, I don't you know, everything's sort of like for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I guess if it reached to a certain point, I would. Sure. I mean, I find writing whatever I want to write fun. Uh, sure. I mean, geez. Uh, talking to people on podcasts is fun. Uh, it's probably more fun than doing my job. So uh, maybe, but I don't think it's going to ever get to that point. Uh, I don't think, you know, if it pays rent at one point, that would be incredible. But I don't think, I, I don't think, I'm not really thinking about that. I'm thinking about, like, after this show we're recording, I have to, like, write my next article. So, like, I'm thinking about that. I mean, I think I would definitely, if I, if I had the opportunity to, like, write an ebook or something that was selling enough, or, like, write many ebooks that like sold enough where I didn't have to clock in I think I would be a lot happier I don't know I I I I like my job too sometimes I get like annoyed by like how much time it takes though like I wish I had you know nine to five or like nine to six or eight to six or whatever it happens to be that day like to go take walks and you know just enjoy myself and like be free from the computer a little bit uh and you can sort of do that when you work remotely, but like there's always the chance that like you're going on a walk and like your boss calls or like there's something urgent or there's a, a Slack notification you need to, to deal with. Yeah, I mean, writing writing whatever you want instead of working a job and you're making the same amount of money, sure. I mean, that's obviously probably a better life. Um, but yeah, I also don't think uh, if it's not there, then I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you're just, you're just causing yourself misery or something? Like, like like, I, you know, you're just going to sit all day and just wish for stuff, so. Yeah, I mean, when I used to have a lot more free time when I was doing the, like, fellowship thing for a couple of years and just had almost all of my time to myself, it was kind of the most miserable time of my life. I felt this constant pressure to be producing things that were genius, and I was never living up to them. And, you know, how could I justify my bohemian lifestyle if I'm not all that great? Yeah, I think you can get inside your own head a little bit too much, and I don't, I don't, uh, what is that thing where you think imposter syndrome people mm-hmm. talk about? Like, I don't even know what that is. I don't know. Like, there's something you have to do and you have to like, you know, there's something you have to write, you know, write it. Or if there's something project you have to get finished. And I just think that more thinking, more awareness isn't always beneficial. Uh, and uh, I think you can just get, met, you know, if you get caught up in your head too much, uh, I try not to do that. Uh, I also, I also think it's, uh, I don't know, it's just, just not helpful. So, mm-hmm. you know, the Lindy man persona is, is really, um, 
It's really interesting. It seems sort of just a, a guide to having a normal, healthy mental headspace at a time when, you know, virtually everyone we know uh, has taken SSRIs or is in therapy and things like that. And, and I was wondering, have you always been such a sort of, you know, copacetic seeming person or, or what, what, you know, how did, how did this come about, this focus on well-being? Uh, I guess not, not always. Um, I guess when I was younger, I may have been more in tune with the times of the trends. And, uh, and, and later on, as you, as you read more and as you grow up and you have more experiences, you, um, you change and you sort of look around at your surroundings and your environment. Uh, I, you know, the Lindy thing is a good, it's a, it's a really great heuristic. I think following Nassim Taleb has been great. Uh, and, it, you know, it's a way to sort of post about uh, certain things in life and sort of examine them. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, think, I think just like everybody else, uh, you go through life and change, so. I generally think there's a large uh, mental illness sort of wave going on or like people identifying with it. And I find that kind of weird with uh, younger people. Uh, I mean, maybe there's something to be said, like culture is stuck in sort of these recognizable ways, music, movies, aesthetics. Um, but like, I feel like even like mental health, like your, the state of your mental health, like maybe we've, we've shifted the lens on, your, on ourselves and in our personal identities. And that's what's evolving instead of like what we would think of, like, you know, what music we're listening to or what shirt we wear, you know, what everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Maybe like mental illness is sort of signifier for some sort of identity and sort of sharing a shared culture, like a conspiracy is, um, you know, that could be. I, I also think, you know, a lot of it's, you know, I think some of it's real, but I also think a lot of it uh, isn't. So uh, I actually think the environment that you're in also dictates how you feel and, and what you think may be a mental illness. I think um, you see rise in Adderall use among white collar professionals. I think you're seeing a lot of stuff going on to, to the environment, to maybe the four hour life, maybe the consistency space, maybe toward being single, maybe toward not having kids, maybe not being married, not, I don't know. Like, I think there's been a little bit of a change in the environment. Uh, could be a reaction to it. Yeah, I, th I, think, so. I think so. Um, yeah, definitely a lot of people are taking Adderall. <laughs> Adderall is very ubiquitous. <laughs> I, like, I like your point about like, you could tell if someone's written something on Adderall, it feels very true. <laughs> I used to, uh, I used to, for a very brief period of time, like some some dumb doctor like prescribed me Adderall, and for some reason, every time I I took it, I would think to write uh, TPG's mom an email, just like kind of giving her a digest on how I felt about her. <laughs> like your daughter is so great, just wanted to write you four thousand words about it. Yeah, I think the, if you're, what does I say? If your gait doesn't change on a Friday, if you walk the same way all the time, you're probably on Adderall and that's a tell because, or, or if your mood doesn't change with the weather and that it's raining outside, you know, all the normal human variations of life and how we change. And if you're just con completely consistent and like wired, uh, that's a tell. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, um, there's important, there's job, there's a lot of competition out there. America is, America is a very competitive place, especially for like middle class, maybe upper middle class jobs. Um, you know, it starts with like people trying to get into schools. I went to shitty schools. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't, I, I just found my way to various places, but, you know, there's a lot of competition and it seems like there's more, uh, compliance necessary and credentials and it's more it's a bit like more of a race uh to get to these places so yeah Adderall is definitely a drug that makes you hyper focus on things that are not interesting in of itself right or else you wouldn't need it uh and it's sort of this response to this environment both the work which you don't find interesting enough to be stimulated by and the competition behind you uh who you want to beat out for, right? This upper upper middle class salary. Yeah, I mean, uh, there was a pretty good book published last year by a Yale law professor, Daniel Markovitz, uh, called The Meritocracy Trap. And one of the terms he talks about that I thought was really interesting uh, was what he calls glossy jobs, which is the fact that the most coveted jobs in our society, so working at the top investment banks, top law firms, being a cardiac surgeon, et cetera, these are all pretty unpleasant jobs because you have to work 20 hours a day. So everyone's competing really, really hard for these positions that they're miserable in. Um, and then there's this sort of you know, dis I guess disconnect between the huge amount of effort that went into it and then the daily misery that one suffers, but you have to sort of validate that and perpetuate the crisis by saying, oh, well, because I make a million dollars a year, I can get my kid into Harvard and he can do the same thing as I did. I mean, I don't know if you saw recently this uh, report that was put out by first year analysts at Goldman. It was sort of an informal survey among themselves. Um, but what it found was that the average first year analyst was working from 9am to 5am on an almost daily basis. And that's a lifestyle that you need Adderall for. Um, and that probably like unmedicated happiness is impossible at. Yeah. And those are the elite of the elite jobs, right? So, I mean, this, right. this isn't just sort of, uh, upper management at a, you know, a regular sized corporation, uh, you're going to a place that, you know, like McKinsey or Goldman that, um, yeah, so, so the elites are on drugs, right? And not only are they on Adderall, but they also don't want to die on the other end, right? A lot of <laughs> anti-aging drugs are coming on, right? And this started, I would argue, with Viagra, the Viagra revolution in like 90s, late 90s, where, you know, you could be a 70-year-old man and have sex again, uh, which was not, you know... In history that was never been done before uh and then you know as as sort of time went on uh transhumanism got into the culture uh through various ways and uh, and i think adderall is sort of another step into that which is um you know american the american uh what do they call it the american striver the american striver elite wants to um stay in its class because going down a class guy sucks going down income level sucks um but I, that's why i like remote work because you can take a job that's uh maybe not not as crazy ambitious at a reasonable salary and go live somewhere where your cost of living is still okay um, that's why one of the reasons why i think remote work is sort of uh, it's really nice benefit to, to workers because i was in new york uh 
I was in New York and I was in this small apartment and it was expensive. And I was like, this sucks. And like, like, I don't, like New York isn't a beautiful city to me. Like, I guess there's opportunities there. Uh, and that's where a lot of jobs are, but it's just a big, there's America's a big country. And I think there was like a recent survey of a lot of, if you ask where a lot of people wanted to live. Yeah. A lot of people are fine being in the suburbs, but then you get a certain, I think it was like 30% want to go to a rural area or something. So I think there's generally a sense of people go where the jobs are um, and remote work kind of shook that up a little bit. Uh, and maybe they're looking around to see where, where they want to live in other places. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that's, that's interesting. I had, I didn't know this term, the striver, but I guess part of the reason that there's a polarity between being a striver going down a class is uh, the collapse of middle management since the 1970s. I think something like 70% of middle management jobs have been lost over the last four decades, uh, which is kind of a shocking statistic. So either you work really, really, really hard and try to you know, get your way into one of the most elite jobs or at least upper management jobs at a firm, or you're going to run a good risk of making less money than your parents did, which I think is very hard for people of our generation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I also think I also think at some point there's a turning point where you know uh, how much of that even matters as long as you have a good you know living you, you like where you live um, at least you don't hate what you do uh, and at least maybe you have a family or wife or you're you're in a relationship I mean as you get older you realize that that's you know that's great you know that's great to have and having maybe a fun side hobby um, is enjoyable. Like I, I, I like my life. So I feel like this is a this is a good uh, a good contrast from last week's like let's blow up the world because office jobs suck. It's a good like middle of the road. Like yeah, maybe they suck, but we don't have to blow shit up. We could still you can enjoy it. Go for a walk. Uh, maybe if we move to Europe or like out of a, you know a big coastal city, we could have some joy. Look, uh, my my existence could be held to somebody else's, right? Who's Mark Andreessen could could have a heart attack if he lived my life, okay? But then again, there's other people who uh, I've been in situations where the life I'm living now is much much better than other you know other lives I've lived in shittier jobs or in, uh, bad relationships or um, have less money or weird dysfunction going on. Uh, so I think, I think it's, um, I think it's, it's how you sort of feel in life and it's hard to sort of hate, it's hard to ignore those feelings a little bit. Uh, but, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not an overly pessimistic or negative person or want to blow everything up. Like, I don't know. I feel like I live better than 99% of the world. I don't know what to tell you. I think that's a, that's a good attitude. I mean, I, I think there's maybe like multiple good attitudes, but that's probably one of the better ones, right? Like try to appreciate the moment and make, you know, the necessary changes if you find yourself unable to. Right. It could all go away tomorrow though. I can make one bad joke on Twitter. I can get suspended off Twitter. I can get my, my job could find, you know, fire me does for you, it. Does your my job wife know could leave it? me. Like it could, you know, what's that old story? Solon goes to, uh, I don't know. No, my, my job doesn't know goes to the, the king of Persia, right? Or and he says, the king of Persia says, look how much, you know, how much money I have. Aren't I like the happiest man in the world? Have you seen anybody happier? And Solon 
mentions these dead people, right? Who live these sort of virtuous lives. And the, and the Persian king is like, what are you talking about? You know, I look like they're dead, I'm alive, everything's going good. And then Solon says, you know, wait till the end of life, right? You can't judge a man and happy until the entire path of life is done, right? So you see that with Harvey Weinstein, see that with Bill Cosby, see that with like, Epstein, right? These guys who live these amazing, you know, criminal, right? And they deserve to go to jail, by the way. I'm completely, I'm not saying that they, they, these are complete guys, but nonetheless, they were rich, uh, you know, had lives that many people would want without sort of the rape or the crazy pedophilia. Um, and I wouldn't want to be them. I wouldn't be in, want to be in those shoes. So you sort of, uh, you never know. Anything can go bad at, at any point. But yeah, I, things, things, aren't, things aren't bad for me. They could be bad for you or for other people if you don't like it. Um, but I think, I think understanding the four hour life structure um, doesn't make work more fun. It's just, I'm not perplexed by what, why I feel the way I do. What, so what do you think uh, your job would, would say if they found your Twitter account? Uh, I, I don't think it's a big deal. I mean, I just write. I, yeah. don't, think I, do, I don't think I post anything crazy. <laughs> you don't, do you, you really don't. What did I post today? I posted that relics are deep lindy because the NASA, I guess NASA sent this like helicopter to Mars and they added a small parchment from the first airplane by the, uh, what are they named? The Wilson brothers? What are the, what are the names of the first? The guys who made the, the, the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers, sorry, not the Wilson. <laughs> uh, so they added like a little parchment to this helicopter, like they like hit it as this like sort, sort of token, this, which is like a deeply ingrained part of the human being, right? Like this is NASA, this is technical, this is scientific. And here they are adding this, this sort of relic from the first uh, flight on earth to putting it on the first flight on Mars, right? So like 116 years went by between us flying on earth and now us flying on Mars, right? And this. It's this deeply sentimental, it's this relic, it's this sort of token to our ancestors. Okay, that's what I'm writing about, right? right? So like, <laughs> I don't know what my job would say to me. I'll be like, yeah, that's fucking Lindy. That's true. What do you want? I, mean, I don't know what, I don't What? I mean, there's no, I don't know. Yeah, I guess, I guess there's other guys. I'd be like, there's some other like people who are posting crazy shit. And it's like, yeah, you should, you better stay anon. Like you're fucking crazy. Uh, or you're getting into like weird political games or you're, you know, I don't know, but what I do, you know, I don't, it's cool. It's cool to me. That's a, that's a good way to think, right? Like I kind of, I used to feel that way. I used to even like tell my employer about, I mean, not like my boss or anything, right? But I had no problem with my coworkers seeing my Twitter. And then like, as of late, I'm like, oh my God. I hope no one sort of stumble. Like I don't, um, I don't ever like talk about like the specific uh, space. You know, like people know that I work in tech. They don't know like what particular kind of tech. I make sure to never even accidentally reference anything that has anything to do with it. I just don't want to like get into the mix because I don't want them to think I'm a crazy person. Yeah, I mean, I had one person come up to me from work and say, you know, they they they, they know about my account and they, they really liked it. And it's like, yeah, you know, I'm a great writer. Like I'm doing great shit right now. Like I see a lot of garbage on Twitter. I see a lot of just complete trash. 
And then when I post, it's really, really good in multiple layered, uh, either with humor or with insight uh, or with a personal story. Um, and so, you know, you're dealing with uh, greatness with what I'm doing. Uh, and I just, and I see a lot of trash. So I have nothing to be ashamed about. Uh, I really consider myself the greatest living writer. And I say that without irony or anything. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't understand what the problem is. Do you think that you're a better writer than Taleb? Yeah, yeah. I think Taleb is, uh, I like this first book, Fooled by Randomness. Um, he talks about being an employee, working at a bank, sort of, that's the start of his ideas. And his later works, he's great. No, he's, he created his own genre. One of the, you know, I think he's a real, I think people really underappreciate how smart he is and how uh, good of a writer and how uh, important his ideas are. But I think I'm living in the world and he is sort of like on a, on a mountain. And sort of when you live in the world, you can connect with people because their experience is your experience. And you're like, you're on this journey with me and we're living this, this life, the same life. And I have this uh, machine in my hand that I can tweet my thoughts. And if you can connect with my thoughts, I, I, just, think, I, I just think there's something very special. Uh, what do you mean by living in the world? I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a very wealthy man. I'm not wealthy at all. I have, uh, I am a product of my time. I have my student debt. I am in a job market that's competitive. I could lose it at any moment. Everything is precarious. I'm dealing with the, the, the trends of the day, which is, you know, low, low marriage, low fertility rates, um, high cost of healthcare. I'm dealing with sort of the, dealing with technology head on, dealing with like, I don't know how much of what we're seeing and what we're experiencing all day is changing us. Um, we're dealing with new interfaces. Like, like you go to Twitter every day, right? For your news, entertainment, like what the fuck is Twitter, right? Uh, we, we used to go to newspapers. We, we, used to, we didn't even have screens before. We're entering a new age. Uh, and we're also getting tons of new products marketed toward us. We're getting something called Beyond Meat. Was well, Beyond Meat good for you? Or Oatly, is that good for you? Like, what are these things? These are being marketed as good for you. These are being marketed as like environmentally friendly. There's all these new morality trends. It's been, you know, it's the destruction of organized religion, right? That's gone basically as sort of a real legitimate force in, in the world. Um, now it's been replaced by sort of, other secular forces. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of big things. And there's also things like, uh, you know, should it mouthwash, fuse mouthwash, you have higher incidences of cancer because it, you know, kills all your good bacteria in your mouth, right? So like, I'm living in the world. Uh, and I think if you living in the world means you're vulnerable to uh, all the trends and all of um, the upside and the downside. Well, that's a that's a similarity between you and Delicious Tacos, who also said something like the reason that his fiction has such force is because he actually has a job that he hates, unlike everyone who just theoretically writes about their jobs. Um, that probably is, I guess, the reason that your advice speaks to so many people is because it's advice from a normal person dealing with the same problems. Um, yeah, it's a phenomenology of, of working for a living. I think it's actually a new form of writing, which is you get people who uh, write about working, but don't work, right? Um, 
You get academics who do that a lot. You get people in payoff space who are making money. And like I asked Felix Biederman, right? Chapo Trap House on my show. I said, do you even remember working for a living? Like you've been kind of rich now for five years. You've been kind of in this payoff space. And he's like, I don't, I don't remember it. And uh, he was worried about sort of, um, uh, you know, not connecting with his audience. And, and, then, and then he realized, you know, as long as you put up good content, the, the audience doesn't matter if you're working or you're not working. And that's true. And that's true. And I think um, generally we sort of like the person and not necessarily the position. You, you got to have talent, right? You can't just, just because you're in the same position as me doesn't mean that I'm going to care what you say. But nonetheless, if we're talking about the subject of, of sort of working for a living and how that impacts you and your relationships, and I think, I think when you're in it, uh, you have insights that people who are not in it uh, don't have. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, uh, do you know David Foster Wallace's last novel, The Pale King? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's about an uh, accountant, I guess, working at the IRS in this, you know, stultifyingly boring job out in the countryside in Illinois. And, you know, in the book, which I love, you know, Wallace proposes a sort of mysticism of everyday life approach to dealing with a boring job. And to me, I, I love that book, but it seems obvious that it's written by someone who's never had a job like that. And your advice seems a lot more actionable and helpful. Yeah, uh, David Foster Wallace is a bit, uh, I mean, I think he's a troubled guy. He kind of recommended ruminating and sort of coming up <laughs> with sort of characters in your head and alternate realities in your head. It's a bit of a mental hell he's gonna put yeah. you under. Mm -hmm. And um, I think engaging with the world is as much, is much more uh, therapeutic to people uh, and sort of a better way to sort of engage with life and sort of getting out of your head is, is a better approach. Um, but I also think David Foster Wallace was in that, in that era, that last era of um, big time sort of smart novelist uh, writer that sort of could, could, could write about a lot of things and not sort of, uh, nobody would call you out on it. So I, I, I I, uh, yeah, like, I think what I do, because uh, I think when I write it, I post it, like, sometimes I do, I post at work, and people read it at work, because we're all surrounded by screens. So this is a pretty novel environment, right? You're reading about the four-hour life in the four-hour life by somebody in the four-hour life, um, you know, and, and I think it just hits harder, too. So you can, your writing style depends on the look time that they're reading it, too, which I think Twitter's great for. But then there's other there's other ideas too that I write about that I think people like. So. It's funny, like, uh, you know, a lot of what we're talking about, like, this is why, like, and I forgot about it actually until this moment. Like, I wasn't ambitious as like a younger writer or like I wasn't as ambitious because I wanted to like live life before I tried to write about life. Like I was afraid that like, what does a 20 year old know about anything? Like, how could I possibly like speak to any experience when I haven't had any experiences? And I feel like this is sort of like an underrated reason why people like put off having kids too. Because if like, you know, you have a kid at 20, like obviously you continue to accrue experiences and live your life, but it's like, how could you parent that child if you haven't lived enough to have wisdom to transmit to them? Uh, I agree with you on the first point, but not so much on the second point. I think there's something, uh, I think there's an overemphasis on parenting and I think, the process ha has happened generation after generation. It's been fine. 
Uh, I think the people are neurotic now. I don't even think schooling even much matters. But um, as for the first point, yeah, a lot of online writing is from younger people and it doesn't matter. It's all trash. I don't read it. I don't take it seriously. Um, young people's struggles are not interesting to me because they're not interesting. Uh, I think once you've sort of lived a little bit of more of a life, uh, that's when life, that's when things get interesting because you're dealing with uh, uh, time and, and you're dealing with uh, not just acute sort of experiences like by intensity, but by the length. So like there's that old a dripping water will hollow out uh, stone. Uh, and I think that's interesting that the sort of um, not so much struggle or pain, it could even be happiness or just the experience of life also in, in a certain space over time. And that takes age. Uh, and, and, you know, I think age is, you know, I think age, as you get older, you realize age is kind of more important a little bit, um, you know, for, even for looks and for beauty. Like, in my opinion, a lot of women under the age of 25 look beautiful, even if they're really not, you know, as long as they're not, you know, too overweight. And I think beauty, you know, and youth are so correlated in females that, you know, I don't think you can really tell if a woman's beautiful until she's like really 43, 44, because youth is so powerful when it went to attraction. So, uh, yeah. Do you think we have an overemphasis um, on youth in our culture, you know, trying to appeal to youth, uh, listening to young people, uh, you know, the, the whole gamut? And TBG, I'm kind of curious on your opinion on this too, because I don't think I know how you feel about this. Uh, yeah, I think there's an emphasis, but I also think youth is where uh, I think a lot of people, I don't know, I don't know what the breakdown of my like follower ages or who subscribes to my newsletter or anything. I think it's not that many. I think it might be a little older. Like I think the people who follow me more or less have a job. So I don't know, but yeah. I mean, there's an emphasis on youth, uh, like, and that started, that was like in the, like that stuck culture thing, right? Like the YA and Harry Potter, and we're still there, right? Like young adult literature is like huge. And like superhero Seems movies like are an ext extension of that. Harry Potter just won't die. Like that's really weird. I remember when Harry Potter actually seemed like very enchanting and like charming. And now it's just like, it's just like the McDonald's of, pop culture reference like it's 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 below the bottom rung because it's just too oversaturated i guess if you're posting online you're always going to be engaged in youth culture because there's a bias toward it and that's where a lot of sort of the crowd is and where the innovation is and and you know i tend to think a lot of comedy comes from that world too a lot of the memes and like and like other stuff but uh I think my I think my followership is, is older, at least at least not like youth youth anymore. So I would guess that you probably your followers are probably between the ages of like twenty five and thirty four, like especially like in terms like I'm I'm not kidding when I say like even outside of like people I've I've met through Twitter like real life um, you know like friends of my boyfriend or whatever who who know you like. Uh, you know, when you come up in real life, uh, it's definitely in that age bracket, which is kind of a, a big bracket, but it seems like mostly male, um, mostly, you know, mid-20s to early 30s. Yeah, but also we would know people in the 
mid twenties to early thirties age bracket. I mean, for all we know, there could be tons of 45 year olds that like him and we just don't know 45 year olds. I mean, I think we both, as you've, you've made clear in prior episodes, you, you skew a lot older and I often skew a lot younger in terms of who I know. Um, well, I'll say one thing about youth culture that I thought was interesting. I mean, I think that there has been a, like a real infantilization of our culture because of the ease of posting stuff online. And that's also a form that can appeal to really, really young people. It's sort of post verbal. I mean, as you know, I know like a 60 year old filmmaker who's, you know, won the Guggenheim, won the Rome Prize, stuff like that. And he was really demoralized recently to realize that his 12 year old son's Fortnite videos on YouTube have more views than his award-winning films. And that's just, that's just the direction our culture is going in. I mean, it's not like this is the first time that youth culture has been important or that culture and advertising have tried to follow the youth, but it seems like the first time that youth are actually dictating the culture through direct distribution. I, at least that's my impression. Y'all probably know more than me about it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems it seems important now, and as technology uh, gives people uh, like TikTok, like I've never been on TikTok. I even thought Snapchat was the first app that I felt was for young people. So like I can't even imagine like TikTok, right? And Snapchat is sort of mature, I guess, or I don't know who uses it, or <laughs> but that was like the first time I saw that. Like, wow, this is this is just gonna get younger and younger, and like. Uh, uh, I guess, I guess this is a big market, but I mean, you know. I and also, you know, with digital media and stuff, sort of the apprenticeship period has been devalued. You know, it used to be that if you wanted to be a filmmaker, you had to learn how to use a camera. You had to buy film, which was very expensive. Basically, you had to have a team following you around doing sound recording and stuff like that. But now there's sort of the idea that you can just put a video on YouTube and you can become a famous YouTuber and a millionaire at 15, which I think is kind of hard for young people to deal with the thought that they're just one iPhone video away from fame. This is something Default and I have talked about. I, I don't know what you think about it. I think uh, who wrote Barabasi writes about networks uh, a lot. He wrote a couple of books um, and one of them was the, like The Secrets of Success about how to be successful in like a decentralized network world. And it's really fucking hard. Uh, I, think, I think people think that uh, making money, I think you'd be surprised how few people actually make a living from, from being an influencer, I guess. I guess there's some that do. But then again, where I also don't know, uh, as the world gets more decentralized, the people I know uh, really shrink. Like there's millions of uh, people who follow YouTubers and I've, and I completely missed the YouTuber era. Like I couldn't name you one person who does YouTube videos, right? I know PewDiePie, is that, is that how you pronounce it? So I know that name, but I've never actually seen a video. Uh, I've like, so, and I haven't watched TV in a few years. So I couldn't tell you what's going on there. Um, so yeah, there's some errors that I miss that I feel like I didn't, but I don't feel like I got any, like, like when I typed this, when I posted this, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks ago or a month, I just posted like, I completely missed the YouTuber era. Did I miss anything guys? Did you like anything? Right. And the results were like, no, you didn't really miss anything. And I was like, okay, well, let's, let's move on now. Um, so yeah, I think like what you stated earlier, you create your own bubble and I think people are make, making their own bubble. Um, and this is sort of when I talked to Mark Andreessen, you know, he said that this is the really the beginning of the internet era. 
Like it wasn't 10 years ago. Like, like right now is sort of, we're seeing the internet and people getting into creating their own bubbles that they're gonna have um, for a long time, by the way. Uh, you're seeing it now. Uh, and, and this is the real era of, of being online uh, as being a uh, something different than maybe 10 years. I know it's like probably kind of hard to believe coming from me of all people, but I like was sort of hoping that maybe like this is the decline of the internet <laughs> and maybe we'll be free soon, but maybe not. It doesn't sound like that's the case. Uh, I mean, the internet sucks if you don't know how to use it, right? Or if you're following people who bum you out or uh, it's so it's almost like going to be a reflection on, on you at some point, uh, which is going to be scary because look, if you don't get into like a, a nice little subculture or, you know, find interesting content, you're, you're stuck with mainstream sources and reading New York Times. And like, if you read the New York Times every day and watch CNN or MSNBC, you would think Trump was destroying America and it was like World War III. And now he's gone and nothing, nothing's really changed, right? So you were just sort of hyped up and freaked out for no reason. Cortisol increased, you're sort of walking around mad. Uh, because you're part of a, you know, a shitty culture, which is the mainstream culture um, that was freaking you out. Uh, so yeah, if, if the, the tool of the internet and like where you are now, I feel like it's like the next great uh, adventure for the individual. TPG, would you say you were someone who was like, maybe reading more like mainstream sources or like, I, I guess like not mainstream, but less subcultural sources up until maybe recently, or have you always been kind of plugged in? Um, I think I stopped reading the New York Times around 2016. I mean, it's just clear when it became impossible to read that paper anymore. I think now the only mainstream paper that I read is the Financial Times, which is a tiny bit insulated from polarity because it's a foreign paper. Um, but yeah, it's true. I used to read like four newspapers a day. And now I don't do that anymore. And I feel like my I've lost something out of it. Um, I've lost the feeling of belonging to a culture that I can trust since most people I interact with read and subscribe to the New York Times, the New Yorker, and don't question it at all. So I feel sort of a, like a, a difference between, I guess, like my actual preferences and stated preferences as I go to my job, go to school, talk to people that I know in real life. And that doesn't feel good. It feels like a psychic disconnect that is unhappy and can't be sustained. And I don't think I'm the only person that feels that. Probably like very, uh, yeah, very common to feel alienated by. I mean, that's the, that's the cost of the subculture approach, isn't it? Like if you can't be at home in your culture, then there are a lot of people that you're cutting yourself off from. I think, I think that's right. If you're always like, I mean, too much, too many subcultures is kind of a symptom of alienation. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that might be it for this episode. Um, I'm going to wrap up with my day too. I have to take a Lindy okay. walk before the sun sets. Those, those are real, by the way, those work. So I know I, I took a lot of them during, during COVID. I, I don't know what I would have done without them. I, rem I recommended that you take one the other day during a, a crisis moment. <laughs> Except I walked out on a fight without saying goodbye and then took my walk, which didn't, I mean, didn't work. Adds a little Whatever. drama to the walk, right? So. <laughs> yes, a certain, uh, je ne sais quoi. Um, but, but seriously, thank, thank you for joining us. Um, yep. This was a really nice conversation. 
Yes, I enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. Have a, have a great evening and have a great yep. afternoon. Bye. 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 Bye.